Welcome to Happened Here. People, places and the stories they tell. I'm Joanna Lumley, host of Episode 9, Oscar Wilde. The public is very tolerant. It can forgive everything except genius. With an unrivaled wit and a penchant for all things beautiful, Oscar Wilde has never left the public consciousness since he first entered it as a young man in the 1880s. In this episode, we tell the story of three days in Wilde's life, from the height of his fame and a provocative flower, to his first night of incarceration in Bow Street Police Station, to the morning he regains his freedom. Without further ado, let's begin. The streets of Mayfair, Piccadilly and Covent Garden, central London. Intrigue for intrigue's sake. Written by Jasmine Silk, performed by Stephen Fry. Amongst a sea of black hats and coats and meticulously downturned moustaches, an impeccably dressed giant is said to walk the streets of Piccadilly with a lily clasped in one hand and a sunflower in his lapel. Should you chance to see him, he might smile to himself and whisper something to the beautiful young man next to him that if you are lucky enough to hear, you are sure to be repeating for weeks. Oscar Wilde has become one of the great sights of London, and he can't say he minds. It all began with beautiful things, an excess of flowers and poetry, and that is a wonderful reason to be gawked at. Besides, the Victorian mouth loves to hang a jar, and it's rather fun to be the cause. Oscar is often seen at Covent Garden Flower Market, buying boutonnieres for his lapel, bouquets for his house, armfuls of lilies for the actress Lily Langtry. But in February 1892, he has discovered a particular florist. He walks with purpose through the chill streets. The little plan he carries in his pocket is too delicious not to share and share widely. So it is with a wide smile that he spies his friend Graham Robertson, an artist. Oscar calls to him as he approaches and draws him into conversation with his customary warmth. With the hellos and how are you's and a comment on the weather all seen to, Wilde cannot bear another moment without at last revealing his plan. The green carnation. He extracts it from his pocket, its strange greenish-blue petals seeming to shift with the light. These carnations are not grown green, they are dyed green, Oscar explains. A modern marvel, and Goodyear's florist in the Royal Arcade at last has enough stock to execute the plan. His instructions to Robertson come in the hushed tones of a schoolboy explaining the newest game he's invented. No more lilies. Tomorrow night the seats of St. James's Theatre shall be filled with men marked by the odd colour of their carnations. 
A mildly strange but simple enough request. Robertson agrees with little resistance. Oscar slips the carnation back into his pocket with a grin and goes on, saying, I want a good many men to wear them tomorrow. It will annoy the public. But why annoy the public? Robertson asks. A decade of fabulous scandal sparkles behind Oscar's eyes as he replies simply, It likes to be annoyed. People will stare at it and wonder. Then they will look round the house and see, every here and there, more and more little specks of mystic green. This must be some secret symbol, they will say. What on earth can it mean? This is precisely the question on Robertson's mind, and Oscar knows it, but he waits for him to ask. And what does it mean? Nothing whatever, but that is just what nobody will guess. Wilde tips his hat with a smile and saunters off to locate more accomplices. There is little left for Robertson to do but to get himself to the Royal Arcade to purchase a green carnation, and perhaps to jot this encounter down, so he has a story to tell at the next party he goes to. This fanciful flower was the beginning of Wilde's end. He was right, the public did see a secret symbol, and the rumour grew that the green carnation hinted at the wearer's homosexuality. Another green carnation set the stage for disaster, a novel published anonymously by Robert Hitchens in 1894, which parodied the romantic relationship between Wilde and Lord Alfred Douglas, known as Bosey. It enraged Bosey's father, lighting the touch paper to the great scandal that would ultimately bring Oscar to Bow Street. Holding cell, Magistrates Court, Bow Street, Covent Garden. Still the sight to see in London. Written by Jasmine Silk, performed by Stephen Fry. April the 6th. 1895. This evening, there are more eyes than bricks lining the walls of Bow Street, and they are all watching for Oscar Wilde in a horse-drawn cab. A crowd of curious eyes, frowning eyes, angry, perhaps disillusioned eyes, follow the growler as it growls across the cobblestones, bringing Oscar to the police station. Wilde pays no mind, or pretends not to, talking with his arresting officers as he allows them to lead him into the station with a geniality that could almost distract you from the tight distress in his eyes. He knows there will be no bail. That was the first question for them when they arrived in his plush rooms at the Cadogan Hotel and he had received a flat refusal. It has been hours, mere hours, just yesterday, since Wilde himself was the accuser. Since he had stood proud, a free man, defending his reputation from libel, the scrawled insult of his lover's deranged father, the Marquis of Queensbury, after months of harassing Wilde, 
Queensbury had left his card at the Albemarle, the club of which both Oscar and his wife Constance were members, with the words scribbled across it, For Oscar Wilde, posing as a somdomite, couldn't quite spell the word. It was not to be borne. He was Oscar Wilde, the most famous man in London. He had built himself up out of well-pruned phrases and effortless charm, out of philosophical debate and untouchable scandals. He was a genius. He would not be maligned by an ageing lunatic. The display of a front was to backfire catastrophically. Early in the libel trial, Queensbury's attorney announced that he had statements from several male prostitutes that they had had sexual encounters with Wilde. Rather than let the men testify, Wilde was advised to stop the trial, withdrawing the libel suit. But the statements had already been given to the authorities and would prove to be Wilde's downfall. On the day of his arrest, the scent of his hubris fills the air, and the disapproval of the crowd waxes strong. This very night, his name is coming down off the playbills at the theatres. Just a few minutes' walk away, an ideal husband and the importance of being earnest are playing to dwindling audiences. Oscar Wilde is escorted to his prison cell. With what a crash this fell, he will write in a couple of days' time. Now there is stunned silence and bleak walls, utterly blank, devoid of beauty. He stares at the floor. Dark falls. Public and press reporters pressing their noses up against the bars of his cell window. Oscar pacing back and forth and back and forth. Leaning against cold stone walls, tipping his head back as if to sleep while standing. Soon the stillness overwhelms him and he is pacing again. The crowd, hunching and jostling against the grill of his cell, sparse whispers seeping through the walls. Did you hear's? And how dreadful's! The public likes to be annoyed. By now they are almost as entrapped in this catastrophe as he is. There is nowhere else left to be, you see. Oscar Wilde is still the sight to see. In London. Oscar Wilde was found guilty of gross indecency and sentenced to two years' hard labour, the harshest sentence possible. In jail, he wrote De Profundis, a spiritual journey written as a long letter to Bosey, who never read it. In 1897, Oscar Wilde was released. He made one quick stop in London before leaving England forever, Stuart Headlam's flat in Upper Bedford Place. The street is now gone, but Lower Bedford Place remains. 31 Upper Bedford Place, Bloomsbury, London. From Jail to Exile. Written by Jasmine Silk. Performed by Stephen Fry.
19th of May, 1897. This is the beginning and the end that has hung in the air for two long years. Now, having arrived, it dawns over London with the last cool breaths of spring still hanging on the air. Upper Bedford Place in Bloomsbury is waking slowly, the sleepy eyes of the tight terraced houses not quite yet open to register the approach of the dark curtained carriage from the north. It rolls quietly into the uniform street and stops outside number 31. Three figures emerge. The first two hurriedly, their chilly fingers fiddling with the keys in a furtive race against the rising day. Nobody must see him, or the papers will be on to them. The third figure, however, lags behind. He steps down out of the carriage slowly, placing each foot on the pavement with the same marvellous consideration that one might have stepping out onto water and discovering it solid beneath your feet. As his head ducks out of the carriage and he rises to his full height, a smile spreads across his face. He looks about him with a glowing approval that the street was hardly used to. If Bedford Place could blush, it certainly would. The door opens, and he is ushered in as he picks up the newspaper on the doorstep. The front page reads, Release of Oscar Wilde. The man himself flips the newspaper upside down and begins to read it. At an odd look from his companions, he smiles and says, It's really the only way to read newspapers. Nobody could begrudge him a little quirk today. Among Oscar's friends, this is the end of a long countdown, planned to the finest detail. All the same, it's an unknown. Two years in a labour prison, he couldn't return the same person. Yet he's a pleasant surprise, looking thinner but healthier than two years ago, and in the ride from the prison, speaking with such easy humour that they almost forgot where they were driving back from. Inside his supporter Stuart Headlam's flat in Upper Bedford Place are all the lost luxuries of freedom. Art, a warm bath, fresh clothes and coffee. In just a short while, Oscar Wilde reappears like his own ghost, laughing smoking a cigarette, a flower placed neatly in his buttonhole. He delves back into the world of ideas, discussing Dante and spirituality, flitting between thoughts fed by two years of solitary echoes from prison walls. One such thought comes to his mind, and remembering his desire to go on a Catholic retreat, he jots down a letter to be sent by special messenger to a Jesuit priesthood in Mayfair. Within hours, the reply is brief and cutting, breaking Wilde's flow of light conversation into bitter tears. They can't accept him on an impulse. It would be a year-long process. More waiting would be unbearable now. Nope. They'll catch the evening boat to Dieppe. His bag still packed, 
Oscar Wilde has hardly returned before he is to leave again. Out now, out of London, out past the theatres and their familiar placards, out and away from the Cadogan and the Café Royal, out of Bloomsbury and out over the Thames, this time never to return. Oscar Wilde died in Paris in 1900, just three years after leaving prison. He was 46 years old. Happened here. People, places and the stories they tell. Hi, my name's Jasmine and I wrote these stories about Oscar Wilde. What was so magical about writing them was putting this historical figure in a time and a place. It made the tragedy of what happened to him feel even more real than before. If, like me, you want to make the past feel more real, come and join us at happenedhere.com. See you there. But for now, from everybody involved in Happened Here, the writers, the hosts, the performers, thank you for listening. Do come again. We've got lots more stories to tell. Ah, happened here.